welcome to the Little Red Podcast, bringing you China from beyond the Beijing Beltway. I'm Graham Smith from the Australian National University's Department of Pacific Affairs, and I'm joined by my co-host Louisa Lim, a senior lecturer at the University of Melbourne, who's currently a writer in residence at the Journalism and Media Studies Centre of Hong Kong University. This month, we're coming to you from their studios. As always, we're on air thanks to support from the ANU Centre on China in the World and the Department of Pacific Affairs. This March saw China's annual meeting of its legislature and its top political advisory body, the two meetings or Lianghui. We're joined by two of the keenest watchers of its Byzantine machinations, Ryan Manuel of the Asia Global Institute at Hong Kong University, and Andrew Collier, director of Orient Capital Research, to deliver their work reports and give us their thoughts on the state of the republic. Now, before you swipe right or delete this podcast from your phone entirely, let us assure you that the two sessions this year were no dull rubber stamp affair. They were downright exciting. How exciting? Well, listen to this. That was Su Han with his destined to be a cult hit. Two sessions from China to the world. Gentlemen, welcome to the program. Thank、uh, you. Thank you. Are you excited? Couldn't be more. <laughs> Not really, but、uh, I'm trying to get into the spirit of things. You've got two speakers <laughs> and Australian manners. Oh no! Impromptu, impromptu rap, please. Yeah, my rhymes are so potent. <laughs> You're welcome to give us a little red podcast rap at the、uh, end. I, I'm sure you. I'm not sure you're ready for the listener <laughs> uptake that would follow such such lyrical brilliance. So let's talk about the two sessions, Ryan. Before they kicked off, you argued that the National People's Congress is no longer the rubber stamp that we've read about in our Chinese political textbooks. I mean, what do you think has changed, and why? It's the byproduct of, of other changes. Xi Jinping's anti-corruption campaign has meant that he's he's in his second term of his administration, or his second administration. He's reached for different levers. So he's tried to use different ways of, in essence, making sure everyone listens to him and does what he wants. And as part of that, as part of the constitutional changes which removed term limits on the presidency, he also made a, a raft of of other constitutional changes, which in essence gave a whole bunch of powers on the books to the legislatures and particularly the local legislatures.、Um, so they have a whole bunch. That they don't just control now the carrots. The, the MPCs at the local level have often controlled budgets, which, as anyone who's worked in government knows, is a great source of power. But they also now、uh, directly appoint, supervise,、uh, and and manage, in essence,、uh, the cadres who have come across from the specialist anti-corruption body to these new supervision commissions, which are actually state bodies, and so they report to the legislature. So that means they they now hold. Control over the carrots. They have control over the stick because this is the anti-corruption body, 
And the final part of, of NPCs at the local level is that they, um, in these same constitutional changes, they're now allowed to execute legislation as well as propose their own legislation, which basically means you're running a, a, a parallel government if you wish to down there. Um, this, this doesn't mean, of course, that in practice that's what we're seeing, but if you make those powers available to, to people, I mean, Chinese bureaucrats are pretty good at figuring out how to use them. I mean, I was going to ask, are we seeing that they're actually using these powers or is it just that they have the potential to do so? Well, we don't know because, I mean, it's, as <laughs> they say in the classic, it's too early to tell. Um, glorious analysis there. But uh, <laughs> you're welcome, listeners, you're welcome. Um, send all hate mail to, to me at, at AGI. Um, and to Graham. And to Graham for, the for inviting me, yeah. Um, no, it's, it's hard to say because, of course... Even when you have a stronger legislature, it still reports into these, these standing committees at each jurisdiction level, as, as Graham's own work shows very nicely. Um, but what it does, of course, is if you give someone a power on the book, you, you just don't know how it's going to be used. I mean, NPC has long been seen as a rubber stamp because it has no formal powers, but it's also been seen as a rubble stamp because informally, it's where you put the cadre you want to get rid of. Within the, the, the big four, the Satabanza, you always put the the sort of... The duds, if we, as we say in Australian vernacular, you put the duds in the NPC. Um, that started to change a while back, I think. I mean, again, you can't track these things perfectly across 3,000 county-level jurisdictions. But as you give people control over budgets, more and more local party secretaries are like, oh, yeah, actually, I wouldn't mind controlling where those funds go. I wouldn't mind being able to sign off on my budgets. And now you're giving these people control over the, the corruption body, you really want to know what's happening in these NPCs. And so what has been happening for a little while, anyway, is, is the sort of dual hatting of local party secretaries either becoming heads of NPCs or making sure that their, their sort of cronies or proxies are, are, are put in that spot, which can be difficult to do because you have to sort of negotiate with the level above. But, yeah, I mean, you get to county level of a you know, county party secretary in a Chinese bureaucracy, you, you definitely know how to play a game pretty well. You're very good at it. Graham would have some thoughts on that, no doubt, after his five years spent living the dream in, in, in Banghai County. Well, indeed. There, there, there was only ever one Ibasho, and that was the, uh, the county party secretary. Um, I mean, Can you just say what Ibasho Ibasho. Uh, it, means, it means I'm a pretentious Australian who speaks Chinese really well, so I'm going to use it on the podcast. <laughs> so uh, Ibasho means uh, basically uh, you know, the guy in charge of everything. So the one hand, um, very poorly translated. Uh, I mean, Andrew, obviously this is a is, is a change, you know, that we haven't seen in the past. But how significant do you think this change is going to be? With the caveat that we don't quite know yet. Well, I, I look at it from the economic point of view, and, it, and we're talking about Ryan and I have talked about this, where basically you're talking about the devolution of power to the local levels. So I, I covered the NPC for the South China Morning Post 15 years ago. And at the time, uh, what struck me was that o over time and from that period on, there was growing increase in power in, on, among these NPC candidates going there. So it was becoming less of a rubber stamp. And the other point is that I, I do think it, there is a certain value, and, and this is not hard for me to document, but on the sidelines, there were a lot of comments made that were contrary to some of the, the main leadership comments, like... Uh, if you had certain policies that the, the NPC people didn't like, or even uh, the CBRC, some of the regulators in the financial sector, they might express those slightly negative opinions. So it's, it's a bit of a, an escape valve. 
But the broader trend that Ryan is talking about, I think, is the much more interesting one, which is the, the devolution of power to the local level. And I, I certainly can't comment at his depth on the political side, but definitely on the financial side, uh, since the uh, financial crisis and the growth of shadow banking and the uh, explosion of the property market and the trillions that's earned in land sales, uh, a lot more of these uh, financial decisions are occurring locally. And even though there, there's increasing intrusion of the party into, I shouldn't say decision-making, into all areas of corporate and, and fiscal life, I certainly would agree with what Ryan's saying from the political level. I mean, it seems kind of counterintuitive. Uh, we all think of Xi Jinping as the chairman of everything pretty much forever now. Um, and Ryan, you've written a book about how to rule in China. Doesn't it go against the grain that the person who seems to be centralising power is also decentralising power at the same time. He's decentralising in a way that suits him. One man can only have so much power. No matter if we want to call him the COE or the CEO or whatever, you know, CEO China, as Kerry Brown calls him, or COE China, as Jeremy Barmey calls him, um, chairman of everything. You have to have this, you have this issue of you want people to do what they're told. You want people to, to act in your chosen path or interests. And she has been complaining about no one doing this for since at least 2014. There's been a raft of speeches. There's been a raft of documentation, party meetings, party school training sessions, basically doing, you know, do what you're told. Now, one of the things about the NPC is, is legislation is it broadens the levers available to Xi Jinping. So you can centralise power in your own office, so to speak, and formulate how you want China to look. But at some point, you've got to broadcast it out so 1.3 billion people, 90 million party members, all do what they're told. And in that sense, using legislation laws can be seen as more effective than using other tools. I mean, at the same point that he has strengthened or given formal powers to the MPC, he's also taken powers away from, from the government and from policymaking and from open policymaking that we're used to and shifted them to, a, to an internal party reporting system whereby you know, comments from above and, and memos from below go back and forth in a sort of document war, making something happen. And then at the same point, you, you, so what this allows you to, in essence is to have two trains, both going in your chosen direction. One is to say, well, these are new laws, national security law, for example, counterintelligence law, all these laws that broaden out the powers of the state and the reach of the state. And at the same point, you also get more people reporting directly into your office. So simultaneously centralising. And we're seeing that through internal party regulations like that about the Zhongfa, oh, sorry, the Politics and Legal Commission. I mean, Andrew, thinking about that reduction in the government's um, reach or the government's powers relative to the party, the premier position traditionally has been um, very much firmly in charge of the economy. Wen Jiabao and Zhu Rongji both drove economic reform. Um, but Li Keqiang seems to most people like the invisible man. You hardly ever see him. Has the centralisation of power changed economic policy making, Or to put it another way, um, who is making economic policy in China these days? Well, that's a good question. We're, in fact, sometimes I think nobody's making economic policy in China these days. <laughs> Barry Naughton made the excellent point in one of the China Leadership Monitors that with the creation of the leading working groups, um, it centralised power in the hands of Xi Jinping. So naturally, everybody in the West is stamping their feet and saying, oh, we've got this neo-dictator coming up. However, what Naughton then goes on to say is that it's created a vacuum in the leadership because there's inadequate firepower in the bureaucracy. So unless Xi Jinping pushes a certain policy, 
uh, th- through the party structure, he's basically not going to get a lot of things done. Mm-hmm. And uh, I think that that's what Ryan is indicating, that that's what he's putting all his metal on, on the party structure, because basically that's the one thing he can control. Now, if you look historically and more on the, on, on the economic side, like 20 years ago, about 80 or 90 percent of all capital flows in China were controlled by a handful of banks. So you could sit there in Beijing and basically around a table, you could make decisions that would influence um, the consumption and expenditure and social services uh, for the majority of the country. And even the, the tiny bit of non-state controlled activity with what we now call shadow banking uh, that occurred under Deng Xiaoping was only a, a very small portion of the whole economy. Ever since the 2008 financial crisis, the game has completely changed because all of a sudden the you know the leadership flooded the economy with money, both their own money and also the the people's money, and um, that money is still out there. And my personal view of the the leadership power issue is that Xi Jinping has essentially said, "I can't raise the money. I can't give you guys any money. I can't even control how you raise the money. Just don't blow up the economy and make sure you you keep the actual party control and the apparatus, you know, in together. Make sure that we have the issues with the minorities controlled. But how you how you raise the vast majority of the, of the capital for GDP growth and also for social services is your problem. And I, I think it was an acknowledgement of the realities of what the, the Chinese state has created and what what's occurring now. And I think Ryan has looked at this closely in terms of the political side is how that decision making is occurring on a local level. And I, I'm I'm of the view that it's it's decentralization of power to a great extent. And it's completely contrary to what most people are thinking of right now, the Chinese scene. But if there's that amount of decentralization of control about how money is raised at a local level, doesn't that just open the way for even more land appropriation and sort of predatory behavior by the state? Well, the, the, that is exactly, that's a key point, the degree of waste of capital by local elites, whether they are in the government or outside of the government. People are looking at that, particularly with the local government financing companies, which have, have squandered perhaps a lot of money, and they're sort of half state, half private. Uh, on the other hand, when you have obligations for social services and you have obligations for GDP growth, you, you do have to actually have a certain amount of economic activity. And the party control is, as I'm sure Ryan can attest, is sufficiently strong that you can't stray too much from the mandates. And I'll give you one example. A couple of years ago, I was doing due diligence on an aluminum company in Shandong province in Jinan. And I went up and talked to as many people as I could talk to. And basically, it looked like the environmental mandates to shut plants was being paid attention to on the local level in Shandong. And it was quite significant because the, the private firms there accounted for a large part of uh, aluminum production. However, um, that was about the only mandate that was that seemed to be paid attention to, and it was uh, and the uh, shifting of resources by this private company was going to cause a big problem and headache for Shandong Province. So they, they they asked the private conglomerate to move some of their employees to a different section of it. Uh, but I think that the amount of political capital expended on that it was probably huge. I mean, it almost sounds like, to get a little bit nerdy, um, we've sort of got a supercharged version of what was called the EPL fold, yeah. So the idea that there's a one-power veto in the hands of the county party secretary and that this one man who, in some ways, you could see as a, a miniature Xi Jinping, now has even greater power over his county and the Ballywick. Is, is that the case or is that oversimplifying I, it? I, I wouldn't... I mean... Again, staying on the nerdy theme, I'll try and do this in rap, though. Um, <laughs> EPR4J is actually a method of top-down control. 
I mean, your average county party secretary, as you know, has 2,000 odd indicators. Mm. And I think what Andy's talking about, and I'm in violent agreement with, is this <laughs> idea... I'm glad yeah, it's violent. It's exactly, as, as opposed to, you know, Gandhian non-violent agreement with, is this idea that you have a bunch of sort of signals coming from above that give local leaders the triggers for what, you know, what are you going to focus on? And so Hu Jintao made very clear what he wanted. He wanted to build the new socialist countryside. These are the metrics of building the new socialist countryside. You must have a working health insurance scheme. Xi Jinping has said these are the three battles. Environmental pollution, which is mainly taken, by the way, as air pollution. Debt and poverty, poverty alleviation. And it's astounding the things that have happened under those three battles at both local levels and centrally. I mean, there is a billions, billions of dollars are being devoted to a voluntary, sorry, we're on radio, I'm doing air quotes under my voluntary there, um, a voluntary funding scheme where businesses are pumping money into poverty alleviation programs centrally. And this fund has is just chucking money at areas. I mean, it, it's amazing how many people are being brought out of genuine dire poverty right now through, in essence, a, a sort of almost quasi-state-aligned tax program where private enterprises are voluntarily donating billions to a party committee, and the party committee is transferring it down to local party secretaries who, as Andy then note, are then responsible for allocating what goes where, who gets what, those decisions of, of you know, what's winning, what's losing. Mm. So it's, it's, it's sort of decentralisation to some extent. But it's, it's this very unusual type of decentralisation which I call call and response, whereby the centre sort of gives out these vague things, three battles, and then your local party secretary is given all these specified, unfunded mandates, thousands of them, and then unsurprisingly, they read the People's Daily, they, they read the tea leaves better than anybody, they go, oh, wow, looks like we're going to be maximising our efforts on this area or that area. And then, of course, there's this sort of local political economy, as Andy notes, as your work notes, Graham, um, that sort of reallocates resources there, in it, frankly, in a market-like way. Um, it's, it's really quite unusual, but it's, it's not, it doesn't fall into that easy categorization of decentralization or, as Louisa said before, centralization. It, it is what it is. Mm-hmm. Kelly Tsai at HKUST, who's written a lot on informal finance, just published a paper with her PhD student essentially arguing that on the local level, there's a land grab for a revenue between provinces and cities. And the paper's kind of complicated. It's a very political science-y paper. Um, <laughs> but um, it's, it's brilliant in the sense that they're looking at this whole battle that's going on. That we're talking about um, you know, center versus local. Mm. And they're talking about within local, there's a whole, mm. uh, can I say, pissing match on, on radio? Yeah, you can. So you know, I, it'll be interesting to see how that happens because now you're talking about battles uh, for all this revenue on the local level. That, and Xi Jinping doesn't really, he's not even paying attention to this stuff so much or indirectly. I think he's paying attention to it, but I think at the same point, it's just that he's got a structurally very difficult situation. I mean, that, that would be my argument as to why he's given more powers to the NBC, because it broadens his reach. It broadens his ability. He thinks this is a new way to try and solve this problem. Hu Jintao, for example, used leading small groups and the fact that leading small groups cascade down. In other words, if you, he, he made it so if you have one at the centre, then it goes all the way down at each of these levels, so provincial level, municipal level, county level, and that that's a way to hold people accountable for their failure not to do one of their 2,000 indicators. Xi Jinping, he's fiddled with the legislature and done things like that. I mean, it, this isn't a static system. These are people dealing with very, very difficult problems with a growing economy and more tools. 
um, we've a party system which gives them an array of levers, we've a government system which gives them an array of levers, and we've a financial system which, as Andy notes, gives them an array of levers. But, I mean, we have seen, this time, we've seen some quite vocal criticisms of Xi Jinping in public forums. So there was criticism of the Belt and Road Initiative, of the trade war, and probably most interesting, this critique of Made in China 2025 by Lo Jiwei, the former finance minister. And he called it a waste of taxpayers' money with a lot of talking but very little done. He said, in the first place, I was against it. Um, Ryan, how do we understand these kind of open displays of dissent? Is it a sign that Xi Jinping is not as kind of all-powerful as we'd, we'd once thought? Well, I mean, if you're going to openly dissent, doing so at a formalised legislative accountability tool in front of party and national media is a very courageous, in the British sense, in the yes minister, yes, minister sense, sense yes. courageous decision to make. Uh, I think we need to read into this that there's a large amount of signalling. Again, if, if you accept my argument of call and response, you have to give out calls. Lord Jiwei, he's a minister, of, ex-minister of finance who spent 40 years in the party working his way up through the system. I mean, he, he's not, he's not going to go out on a limb now. That said, I mean, we need to remember that, the, you know, China has many brilliant people at the MPC that all know what they're doing. They all can read balance sheets. They all have been very well trained in economic systems. They all know what's going on. Um, And the Ministry of Finance or an ex-Minister of Finance coming out and saying that Made in China 2025 was a bit of a dud is not that different from what the Ministry itself did when it very subtly renamed Made in China 2025 at the same MPC. They just seem like different ways to get the same result, which is to be like, let's tone down the, the Made in China 2025 chat because it's freaking people out and it's making our job prosecuting things like the trade war, which Xi Jinping can be held accountable for because, of course, under the Chinese system, he is at the top ex officio role in charge of foreign policy. And so, you know, he doesn't have any sort of accountability mechanism on Made in China 2025. If that goes bust, well, somebody else will take the fall. If the trade war goes badly, though, Xi Jinping, you know, be it visibly or not, there'll be repercussions for him within the system. I mean, thinking of that in terms of the the very, very top level, because we used to watch the NPC with an eye to the factions, the idea that the Jiang Zemin had a Shanghai faction, there was the Hu Jintao's Communist Youth League faction. Mm. I mean, are we now in a, a post-faction era? Um, has Xi Jinping managed to neutralise this issue altogether? If we want to think about Xi Jinping, if we want to think about sort of these elite gatherings, they have two purposes. One is an accountability device because all the top leaders have to go around to every delegation and explain policies and can have questions asked all those things. But the other factor is that there have been different mechanisms to run them. And Xi Jinping, for example, was once lost a popular vote for a committee in 2002, according to the same factional analysts you're talking about. This is in a Chung Li book, actually, mm. 2000 Chinese leaders. He, he, therefore, you know, we haven't seen any inner party votes for quite a long time because, unsurprisingly, he gets in and says, well, I don't like that mechanism. That doesn't suit me. Factions, in that sense, were always probably more... I, I think we were perhaps putting the, the, the cart before the horse on factions, which is to say that factions were a driver of things as opposed to factions being something that, the, that whoever was in charge was trying to use to get through all these Byzantine politics and the fact that you have a consensus-based leadership system that means you need to get people to sign off on things, 
the fact that to get a policy actually passed through the committees that do sign off on this collective leadership, you need consensus, you need unanimity. Everyone's got to put their hand up and be like, I agree to that. I mean, factions are a very good way in that sense to, to keep your power. Deng Xiaoping showed that brilliantly. In the um, rural Canada where I did research, um, <laughs> you even had people who would, who would self-identify as Maoists. They would call themselves Maopai. Mm. Um, and they were actually the most influential um, faction, as they saw themselves, um, within the county. Now, I know I absolutely agree with you. The whole princeling thing has, has definitely been overblown. And, and you know, the idea that Xi Jinping represents the princelings has possibly you know, been overblown. Um, but if you do self-identify as a faction, surely then it's a real thing. Look, I, I think your point is really valid on the princelings. I'm not sure the princelings are a faction because, again, they probably beat each other. I mean, they all lived on the same compounds. They grew up together. Mm. Yeah, probably. And, and not just that, they grew up together during the Cultural Revolution, which means they literally did beat each other up quite by, you know. Um, but the princelings in that sense is more... That, that's more like, if we want to be a bit political science about it, that's more a charismatic leadership model of saying, I belong, I have a right to this, you know. And, and Xi Jinping is definitely aligned to that. You know, it's always my father marched across China and fought hard. And what did you do, collect taxes? And so I think that there is definitely a part of, of, of the princeling of that identification as red, which you talked about Malpai, you know, like, like red versus expert, i.e., for listeners, communist aligned versus, say, more technocratic. That's, that's a very live debate. It was a live debate under Bourchillet, um, and you know, there, there's still a, a very strong sort of trend within sort of intellectual circles arguing about whether these policies that she's using are, are just Chongqing circa 2010 broadcast nationally with a bit less singing and a bit more... <laughs> um, well, we had some more, singing. Yeah, we yeah. had some singing. Yeah. <laughs> Andrew, Ryan was speaking about how Xi Jinping would carry the can if the trade war goes badly. And I think one of the big pieces of legislation we've seen that's tried to address this or aimed at addressing this is the foreign investment law. What do you make of this? Will this stem any kind of exodus of foreign businesses? Um, no. Uh, basically, uh, the barriers to entry below the national level are sufficiently high that it's not the market access is not going to increase a huge amount. There will be some tokenism and there will be a, a, a few banks will get some larger presence there. Um, I notice that MasterCard and Visa have now permission to do business in China, but they have to negotiate with local partners to get j joint ventures, which I, I can imagine is going to be a long uh, battle, partly because local companies don't want to give up market share. And it's a bit too little too late, right? That that right. boat has already sailed long ago. Well, that's the other point, is that basically the, the whole credit card industry is being bypassed by uh, Alibaba's and Financial and other companies. So it could be that it's, it's moot, which may be why they got access. So I don't see a lot of these. Um, I mean, going back to the original point about about the you know these large thematic things that Xi Jinping throws up against the wall to see if they stick, to use that metaphor. I mean, I've always felt it was, as Ryan said, it's a form of signaling. Basically, he's telling people, look, if these are my ways to bring the nation together, here's some here's some ideas. But if you go into the details, Belt and Road, uh, made China made in China 2025. Um, these are things with no real meat until the bureaucracy and the banks and everybody else lines up behind him. And uh, what my favorite example is a person at, at uh, one of the banks in, in Beijing. I, I uh, spoke with a friend of mine uh, a couple of years ago, and, and at the end of the meeting, she said, do you know anybody in Kazakhstan? 
And I said, no, I don't know anybody in Kazakhstan. She said, we have to do a Belt and Road investment. We're looking to do $50 million, and we have, we have no way of figuring any of this stuff out. So we're just looking for some sort of token deal to do. So that's an example. Um, but, but the point is, if you look in the details of a lot of these programs, like Belt and Road, every number I see, except for a few really good people like Dan Rosen and some others, they talk about commitments. It's very different from expenditures. Expenditures is probably about 5 or 10% of commitments. So the bureaucracy is basically saying we're lining up behind Xi Jinping's programs, but we're not going to give a lot of money for it because our future depends on these loans holding up well. Made in China 2025, once the China Development Bank and Exim Bank um, shot their firepower for this, then the rest of the capital had to come from private sources for the most part. But the end result is there's a lot less money behind these programs than people think. But from... Ryan's point about signaling, they're extremely important because they, they give China the impression that they're all on one uh, page and that they're expanding globally, except now the question is, as, you, as Lo Ji Wei said and others are saying, maybe you've um, gone too far. And I personally, not having, I mean, just from my trips in Beijing, the little I can see, I think there's a lot of pushback and I think it's a, it's a big problem for Xi Jinping. But it's very hard to document that. But it sounds like what you're saying is that the problem is that this is a country run by people who haven't really bothered to grapple with the economics. I mean, Ryan made the point earlier. She does not control the economy. I mean, I hate to say this. He's an authoritarian leader. He's got a strong party control. I mean, look at the NPC document. It's fascinating. The NPC document talks about expenditure. And so all the everybody I saw, all the journalists, a lot of the commentary was about expenditure. Buried in the document, it says how they're going to raise the money. And there's two main sources. One of those was land sales, which they expect to go up anywhere between 15 to 25%, even though land sales, are, which is about $6 trillion now or something above going above that, land sales have been down for the last six months. And, and there's other areas. Uh, they're talking about increasing SOE dividends. Now, those of us who've been around the block in China know that increasing SOE dividends is a huge catfight. I mean, Susan Shirk wrote about this 15, 20 years ago, a masterful book where she talks about all the bureaucratic infighting just to get a, you know, a couple of cents from you know, the aluminum companies or oil giants. So they, he, he cannot, even with the NPC and with the whole bureaucracy, he cannot con necessarily control the financing to achieve all the goals that he's talking about. So is, is China heading for a crash? But yeah, that's I get that question a lot from investors at the end of the meeting after I go through all these subtle details. They say, so, you know, is it going to crash or not? And so I, or, or could we put it another way? Is, is it heading for a maxi deval? Because we had a previous guest who was also uh, ran a similar firm to himself, Tim Murray from J Capital. And he was predicting a maxi deval, if not a crash, within the next couple of years. He also said China's economy was the biggest Ponzi scheme the world has ever seen. Well, Victor Shu. Yeah. Um, wrote this wonderful paper when he was at the uh, Mercator Institute. And he basically proved in the paper pretty well that the interest payments are larger than the growth in GDP, which is more or less the definition of a Ponzi scheme. So technically, he's correct. Um, in terms of Jay Capital's prediction of a maxi deval, I wouldn't say maxi deval, but I would predict uh, up, uh, above seven in the near term. But what about the GDP growth? I mean, this is trending down and down. We saw predictions, official predictions, if these figures are to be believed, of 6 to 6.5%, which would be low, the lowest since the post-Tiananmen slump. Can we? We can't even really believe those. No, we can't believe them. I mean, Michael Pettis, um, who's the wonderful iconoclast up at Peking University, former um, Bear Stearns trader, basically, 
um, has been arguing for some time that they don't even the Chinese don't even count for GDP the way the rest of the world counts for GDP. So he sort of dismisses the whole thing entirely. So I don't look that closely at GDP growth. Um, but it's pretty clear that it's a lot lower than and, and most external economists in the last few years say that since 2012, the numbers have been overstated. Uh, and I just read a paper um, two, yesterday or today talking about, um, it was an uh, article in the newspaper, that the um, light production from satellites... We were um, talking about this today. I, I thought it was fascinating. They said, what was the decline? 20, 28%. 28% decline in, in, in urban clusters in production of light while GDP is growing. And you, you sit there and go, well, what, I guess they've got a lot of buildings where they're using candles or something like that. I mean, I don't know what, I don't know what they're doing. Well, maybe it's the environment uh, battle being won, you yeah, know? People right. are turning off their lights. <laughs> Who knows? Um, but, I mean, to get to the, the base of this, I mean, one of the issues you've, you've written about in your reports is the issue of local government debt. And, and the numbers um, involved in local government debt, I, w- I won't read them all out, but they're, they're kind of staggering if, you, and if you, you're talking literally trillions of dollars of local government debt. Um, I mean, how does China work its way through this economically? This is, this is one of the perplexing things. I mean, I've, I've got hedge fund clients that have been trying to short China because of their debt position now for a decade. And, and except for one iron ore period, when iron ore prices went really far down, they basically lost a lot on that one. The, the argument gen- generally is that China, the, the two sides of the coin is China can survive because it's a closed economy. So if there's a real problem, the, the money can't leave the country, which is probably somewhat true. Um, it's very clear that there, China is squandering immense amounts of money, and most independent economists say that um, you know actual material wealth would be substantially higher if they hadn't been wasting so much money. Now, um, what I've been focusing on recently is the transition to privatizing debt and privatizing fiscal uh, expenditure. What, what I think is happening is that in the 2008 financial crisis, the central government went to the banks and said, okay, guys, you know, pull the trigger and, and put a lot of money out there. And then some private money came on top of that, the shadow banking money. Now they're basically saying, except for some targeted bank lending for small business and a little bit of the expansion of the fiscal deficit and things like that, they're basically saying, okay, the money's got to come from somewhere, and so the private sector is going to come up with the money. So all of a sudden, you have a, a, a several hundred billion external bond market, so foreign investors are getting involved in this, property to lending to property developers. You've got a lot of new funds springing up to buy debt from the banks. The asset management companies that were created to, as bad banks 15 years ago to recapitalize the banks and were supposed to go out of business are now getting larger. And they apparently, I just read a report that they they essentially took uh, over a trillion worth of debt off the balance sheet of the banks. And the banks quickly refilled that bad debt. And so then they achieved the same level of bad debt that they had immediately offloaded <laughs> to the asset management company. And it's like talking about a shell game. I mean, they, they, when I grew up in New York, it was like, what do I do? They would have done very well in China, actually, with their little walnuts on the table that they had in the streets of New York. So um, the privatizing debt is going to be a, a problem because essentially when you start having defaults, um, when, when, the, when the leverage or the interest costs are too high, it could be problematic. And, and you're already seeing a, a large increase in defaults in smaller companies, but the state doesn't care. They do not care about the small businessmen. They don't care about the impoverished uh, uh, people in the smaller areas. So they're fine if, that, if they get hurt. Although they indirectly care because of that has a huge hit on local finances, which means that these local jurisdictions aren't meeting their orders from above. And so, of course, you're seeing like this, this what Xi Jinping's almost thing is disobedience. 
I, where that, that's... I mean, it's it's. I'm not saying I, I I completely agree with your point, which is they don't they don't in a policy sense care, but it'll it'll get them. I mean, it, it'll affect. I agree with you. Yeah. Yes, but but the problem is they're in a bind, as you indicated earlier. They're in an awkward position, and I was just meeting with uh, the head of the People's Bank of China, provincial head of personnel. So he's got mm. two thousand people beneath him, and I said to him, "Well, it looks like." The lending, total social financing, which includes bank and other lending, is going down or is, the growth is leveling off for a lot of provinces. In some provinces, it's going doing pretty well. I said it looks like they're really squeezing some guys who are lucky, like, you know, Texas does well, but meanwhile, South Carolina doesn't do well. Mm. And, he, and I said, is that because of political power? Is that because of connections? And he says, no, it's not that. It's because their GDP is growing a lot. So the state's attitude is, okay, you make me some money, I'll give you some money. You don't make me some money, I won't give you some money. So I think that there's a lot of provinces that can get, get hurt. This is really going to exacerbate inequality massively. Uh, yes, big time. Well, yeah, sure, you're going to have hundreds of thousands of unemployed people with no political power, no access to the levers of power, who are going to be basically have just basic subsidies. And then you'll have other people like, uh, you know, doing business with Alibaba and Hangzhou, and they're going to be very wealthy. Yes, it's going to get worse. How are they measuring growth, given that all local officials love to falsify figures? Are they, are they measuring it in terms of um, the revenue that they're receiving? Or how are they getting an accurate measure of these guys are, are, have got their GDP going ahead? Well, you know, Graham, I, I should ask you, I mean, when you were when you were buried deep within the system, I mean, what, what, what kind of metrics did you see when you were... <laughs> Look, I... It's <laughs> a rigorous one. Bumpkin County. Very it's rigorous one. It's really Bumpkin rigorous County. ones. I, I only ever came up with one metric that uh, that seemed to be reliable for measuring the relative health of different places, and uh, that was the uh, the uh, price charged by sex workers. Um, so I, I knew the, you were going to say something to do with massage parlors. Oh, wow. <laughs> no, no, no. Actually, you didn't. I recall in one of your papers you talked about the price of the meal at the restaurant because, of course, the restaurants were a way of, in essence, in, you know, lubricating the wheels of the local economy to keep them spinning. The, the anti-corruption campaigns ruined that metric for you. You think so? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. absolutely. So, so it's touching sex workers but not food? Well, I mean, the sex workers under the anti-corruption campaign also get affected as well. That's but this is I'm back talking. in the good old days of Hu Jintao. It's a Tai Tao. I would say that there's two areas of concern. And, and Ryan, I mean, you pipe in if you think I'm wrong on this. One would be that uh, there, the, Beijing is trying to restrain the debt crisis. So any local government, provincial or otherwise, who is borrowing massive amounts of money is not going to look very good. Mm. And the second one is that the fiscal transfers from Beijing to the local areas, uh, if, if a province runs up short um, in their own money and they can't pay you know, basic social services and they have to get a larger transfer, Beijing's not going to like that either. Ryan doesn't agree with me. I can tell I, he's no, I, I mostly agree with you, but I think there, there's, a, there's a nuance on fiscal transfers I know it's just the sexiest topic ever. <laughs> orderly line, party members, orderly line. I know you want to talk to me. But I think this point of fiscal transfers is really, really important, which is the way that you transfer money makes a big difference. I totally buy your point. But of course, fiscal transfers from the centre to the localities, whether we like it or not, have been increasing. They've been increasing steadily for many years now. And the reason, of course, is if you are a centraliser, to go back to your question, Louise, uh, you know, Transfer from the centre to the locality of a certain type give you a feeling of control. We'll give you this money, but only if you spend it for X rather than Y. And so tied fiscal transfers have grown exponentially. 
this isn't fiscal transfers in the sense of you're just giving people a lump of money. This is fiscal transfers for specific programs and things like that. And now, you know, people like Lord Jiwei, you know, they can complain about Made in China 2025. But I mean, back when he was the head of the Ministry of Finance, what he'd be complaining about is, is just how impossible it would be to try and allocate perfectly funds of money that go all the way down, that get used for the thing they want to, that are done in a sophisticated, targeted way. And I, I, so I think that that's actually a nuance which supports your broader point. I would agree with that. And you could argue that the tied fiscal transfers achieve two goals. One, it reduces corruption, which they're concerned about in Beijing. They're sick of people wasting money. And the second one it, is it provides a basic cushion for people, because, and that prevents people from protesting. And my interest is to see, like, okay, now there's all this money sloshing around locally in the richer provinces, more or less. What are they doing with that? Are they squandering that? Are they turning that into new uh, neo-capitalism? So in the next, I mean, five years to come, where do you see the major risks as lying? Is it mainly sort of the economic risk from debt or are the, what are the big traps? Well, I, I, my view of the political situation is, is that he, there's a sufficient agreement in China's position in the globe and domestically that they're not going to revolt. I do think that there is an extreme potential for a crisis in the property market. Mm -hmm. If you suddenly have what the economists call the Minsky moment, when values suddenly flip, um, and this happened in the United States with all the stock market and financial games at the, on Wall Street, this similar thing could happen in China except where most people have their wealth, which is in the property market. So I look carefully at land as a arbiter of an early part of the cycle of property and also property values. And you think of the hundreds and hundreds of um, millions of people, basically, who have a stake in the game. And that's both individual households and also local governments that rely on land for their revenue. And so you go from, and they're, they're, they're facing this right now, in fact. They're going from increases of 5, 10, 15 percent a year to decreases of 3 to 5 percent now. And that could turn into decreases of 5 or 10 percent. So all of a sudden, the local government is suddenly discovering that they don't have the revenue that they thought they had. And then people's future, is wealth is all tied up in this. And that could cause a both an economic crisis and potentially a revolt of the so-called middle class. And I'm not sure exactly how big the middle class is. That's my, my biggest concern. Other people also, like Victor Schiz talked about this, where you can have capital flight, massive devaluation, uh, massive movement of money offshore, uh, and you have a collapse of the, of the banks. But I think they've de-risked the banks pretty well, so I'm less concerned about that right now. I think that actually would link to my risk, which is this, this who takes the blame. I mean, one of the real geniuses of the political system is that you can have local failure but central trust, hmm. i.e., my local government is struggling, but help me, Hu Jintao, help me, Xi Jinping. If only you knew what was happening in place X or place Y or place Z. We're talking about structural issues in this whole podcast. These are not new problems. It's just how you deal with them. One of the things Hu Jintao did very well was he, he made sure he was never going to be held accountable by giving everybody their own area of functional specialization, keeping a low profile. Now, this was seen as being a weak leader. Xi Jinping is not seen as being a weak leader. And I think, frankly, he's been he reaped a lot of popular benefits from it. He's very popular as much as we can measure these things very well, which is very complicated and probably a topic of a podcast all of its own. But he's also now, he's put himself as chairman of everything. He's made things that used to be private public. Leading small groups never were public devices until 2014, when he started televising meetings. 
He's not just that, but he's also turned leading small groups into commissions, which means that they then have greater powers. You can issue documents, whereas leading small groups have to get another body to issue documents for them. But again, you're putting your name and your face at the top of so many things. What if one goes wrong? That's the actual genius of the Chinese system. Call and response allows you to dodge accountability. Xi Jinping, frankly, in some ways, to his credit, <laughs> he's put his face and his name on a whole bunch of reforms that if they go south, no one's seen that before. I mean, Deng Xiaoping sort of ruled with his highest government position being head of the Chinese Contract Bridge Association. I mean, this is a, this is a very new game, which we just don't know what's going to happen. That's what worries me. Ryan, Andrew, thanks for joining us. Thank you. Thank, Thank you. you. That was Andrew Collier and Ryan Manuel. You've been listening to the Little Red Podcast, bringing you China from beyond the Beijing Beltway. Like us on Facebook, follow us on Twitter, and please rate us on iTunes. If you're inspired to compose Little Red Podcast rap or just do something silly on TikTok, please share it with us. We're on air thanks to support from the ANU's Australian Centre on China and the World and the Department of Pacific Affairs. Many thanks to Keith Richberg and Roy Chan for hosting us at Hong Kong University's Journalism and Media Studies Centre. Our editor is Andy Hazel. Background research was by Julia Bergen. Our theme tune is from Susie Wilkins. And our cartoons and gifts are courtesy of Seb Danter. Bye for now.